Hey everybody, welcome to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pekoski. Today we're going to talk about breathing. We are doing the deep dive with Patrick McKeon. He's been on the show before of the oxygen advantage. And now do not disregard breathing and its necessity in improving your performance in your life and your health. Breathing is the most reflexive movement pattern we have. And this is a massive necessity if you want to improve every aspect of life. And take it from me, someone who really neglected this through my entire career, the benefit I've seen uh, has been nothing short of life-changing. You know, I, I was introduced to breathing for the first time in yoga, and I started to become very curious. I took a breathing class, uh, and I just noticed the incredible ability to calm you down, change your ability to focus, and then the opposite end of that, change your ability to become more stimulated. And, and breath seems to be the gateway to the autonomic nervous system. So our ability to control the stress response, if we want to have an increased uh, amplification of stress, let's say if we're getting ready to train, we're getting a little lethargic, instead of reaching for that pre-workout or that coffee, we just go to the breath. Conversely, when we're done our workout, you know I've become the world's biggest advocate of taking five minutes after your workout to breathe, calm yourself down, bring yourself back down into a parasympathetic state, elicit that response of rest and digest after a workout. So Patrick McKeon joins us today and he's gonna give us the deep dive that everything you wanna know about breathing. There's a lot of stuff in this and, and he's drawing a lot of really, really important correlations between the breath and sleep, between the breath and blood pressure, between the breath and brain function. And the list goes on and on and on. And not only does he do that, but he's gonna tell you the mechanism. So for our us nerdy few out there like myself, this is a super exciting uh, conversation with Patrick McKeon. Now, another thing I wanna throw at you guys, uh, if you're interested in this stuff and you're someone who gets as excited about this as I do, we are gonna be doing a class here in Tampa, Florida with Patrick and myself teaching breathing. I'm not teaching breathing. I'm just going to be there learning just like you guys are. If you're interested, the space is very, very limited, um, but you can find all that stuff on my social media and on the MI40 Gym Instagram page. Uh, Patrick McKeon coming to Florida to teach a uh, three-day oxygen advantage course uh, on screening, on anatomy and physiology of breathing, um, how to improve muscle ox oxygenation, uh, how to improve sleep disorders, the idea of mouth taping and the, and the benefits. So Patrick's been an instructor for Boteco breathing and he's now an instructor for the Oxygen Advantage around the world. This is the only course he's doing in North America this year. Uh, I know it's gonna sell out quickly, so jump on it. Um, one day he's going to open exclusively for athletes. Uh, the other days are gonna be for people who are more of practitioners or trainers and coaches who want to learn how to use it on yourself on your athletes. And guys, I, I can't understate uh, or overstate the benefit of breathing and learning how to control this. And, and as I said in the podcast, and I've said it before, this may be the next frontier of performance optimization, this ability to consciously control our autonomic nervous system, like the ability to, to be able to ramp up your execution, your effort uh, as high as you possibly can in one to two breaths, and conversely bring it down in one to two breaths is ultimately a superpower. And if you're someone who has a hard time sleeping, if you have someone who has a hard time with digestion, if you have someone who has a hard time with a whole host of health issues that Patrick mentions in the podcast, this is for you, and I highly suggest you listen to this. And as I said, this is a deep dive, so I suggest you guys grab a pen, grab a paper, or head over to muscleintelligence.com, which is either launched by the time you see this episode or very shortly after. Check the podcast section, and we're going to have all the amazing show notes there for you. In the meantime, you can go to benpikulski.com slash podcasts, and all the podcasts are hosted there. If you don't know this already, this podcast is also on YouTube, so you get to see Patrick uh, and watch the demonstrations he actually gives during the podcast. So he pulls out the uh, nasal cavity. You can look at that a little bit and see where all these, um, you know, 
blockages or limitations are occurring. Um, we talk about some really, really interesting stuff that I know you're going to love. So clear your schedule and let's do this for the Muscle Intelligence Podcast with pa Patrick McKeon on breathing. Enjoy the show. All right, so just before you jump into this podcast, I want to tell you a little bit about my favorite hack for sickness. We have a lot of people getting sick right now, people getting a cold, people getting a flu. And my favorite hack has you know, come into my life probably about three years ago. And it's something I've been doing for consistently for three years. Every time I get sick, my kids get sick or anyone in my family gets sick, there's one ingredient that I send everybody to. And it's this thing that literally almost feels like it, it immediately kicks it. Like you feel like you're just starting to come down and you take three grams of reishi mushroom, your immune response and your ability to recover so quickly from feeling run down and feeling sick is massively amplified. This is something that I actually take every single day before bed. So before bed, I'll often have a tea or lately I've been having a collagen shake because I know glycine is very important to keeping people asleep or keeping me asleep. And in that collagen shake, I'm adding uh, reishi mushroom every single day. And it's really, really nice and mellowing and uh, probably my favorite thing to take before bed as far as giving you an overall sense of well-being, giving you an overall sense of relaxation, uh, and definitely something you could take every day for the immune benefits and for the uh, calming, soothing effects of reishi mushroom. And this podcast is brought to you by, surprise, surprise, Four Sigmatic. They have been an amazing supporter of this podcast, and you guys know I love their products. If you're not already taking mushrooms, you're really, really missing a big opportunity. Um, and I've talked about Lion's Mane at nauseum. I'm sure you're irritated. If not, uh, soon will be about me talking about Lion's Mane because it's one of my favorite supplements. Now I'm taking it three times a day. I'm taking three grams three times a day just as a little experiment. I've taken it right now and my brain is lit. Um, but tonight before I go to bed or maybe after dinner, uh, I like to balance things out um, with a collagen shake that has three grams of reishi mushroom. Makes me feel absolutely amazing and it tastes great. He's got some other things in there to help with digestion. It's got some um, uh, pe peppermint in there for your stomach. Gonna make you feel awesome. So head over to foursigmatic.com, use the discount code MUSCLE and it's gonna hook you guys up with 15% off anything at the Four Sigmatic site. That's not just ratio mushroom. You can get their instant coffee, you can get their lines made, you can get their turkey tail, which I like as well. You can get cordyceps, uh, literally everything. They've got a whole bunch of new products that they're actually sampling right now, and I don't even know if they're live on the site, but they sent us some amazing samples of their new uh, protein powder, which tastes phenomenal, and a bunch of other amazing stuff at foursigmatic.com. And now guys, this code is not gonna be active forever. So head over now and grab, or maybe at the end of this amazing podcast. And here I'll be a 15% discount on Four Sigmatic. Peace, enjoy the show. I'm sure you, you've went through the science a little bit as well in terms of the receptors or the bioreceptors. Not, honestly, not as much as I uh, maybe should. So if you, can, if you can enlighten us, that'd be amazing. Yeah, so we can bring that in. Uh, we're bringing in, kind of, we're making changes all the time, you know, whatever is out there. Like, it all ties in anyway. Breathing is breathing. Um, but the whole aspect of cadence breathing and stimulating the baroreceptors and the link with that, with bolt score, that there's a direct, there's a correlation between the, the bolt score, chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide and functioning of the baroreceptors. So... It's amazing how entangled all of this is. And we're, you know, it's only in the, every time I deep delve deeper into it, we find out more. So I, I think it's incredible stuff. You know, it's, 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 uh, it's unlimited, or at least it seems that way. Well, I've actually made a post this morning about this and how I think that um, 
regulation of the autonomic nervous system and, and paying attention yes. to HRV is the next, uh, you know, realm of performance optimization. It's kind of the next yes. frontier, you know, like people, yeah. people in my world are very much like leaning toward the, the performance enhancing drug aspect of, of performance <laughs> optimization. And like, sure. I really think the benefit is, is as good for, um, for performance optimization, just looking at how do you enhance this autonomic control? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's really definitely. my belief, and it blows my mind that I mean, pro athletes aren't paying attention to this stuff. It's just crazy. Yeah, so some of them are. It seems to be more some, the early adopters, sure. but it, it can take a while. I think you need about six to eight percent of a population to get on board before it starts to become mainstream. So at the moment, it's more innovators. Yeah, and it's just fascinating to me that it's one of those things that everyone in, in the world wants that quick fix, right? They're like, yeah, oh, I don't true. see an immediate response, so. I'm not willing to do the work, but what what in life have you ever got a great response from that didn't require work, right? Like, sure. like yeah. anything you do, like if you're trying to learn a new language, it doesn't happen the first time you sit down to do it, right? Yeah. Or, or, yeah. or sometimes reluctant to sit down and actually do a breath practice because it takes actually sitting down and being alone by yourself and focusing on yes. something. Yeah. So yeah. The yeah. irony of yeah. our society, right? Oh, it's, it's crazy. And it's, it's worse it's getting. And, you know, if we were like this when we were children, we'd have learned nothing. Because children have an innate patience to allow it to happen, you know, even to learn how to walk, to learn how to talk, to learn every functionality that they're involved with. Um, and children just learn it as is, whereas we seem to have a different mindset or maybe there's, there's so much um, distractions that are competing for our space That's exactly that we, it. Don't, we don't have the attention, you know. Yeah. And I was, you know, I homeschool my kids and I was talking to my wife and I don't think um, acquiring <laughs> knowledge is what school should be about anymore. I think yeah, it's harnessing totally. curiosity, right? Because if you yes. harness like a deep curiosity, a deep, uh, like they'll just want to learn everything. Learning is going to yeah. be easy, I think. Yes. But we have yeah. access to everything. So it's not going to yeah. be the, the access. It's going to be the desire. Yeah. I think yeah. school yeah. needs to really shift its focus to like, how do you yes. keep these kids one focused and two curious? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but it's. I don't think that's the motive. I think the motive for the the, the schools is to make sure that the kids get through a set curriculum. Right. Like for, that's for where, reason, you know, that's the motive. There's nothing else. I think there's a guy called Ken Robinson has done very good TED Talks on education. Yep. And also the deflation of education. You know, 20 years ago, a BA was pretty good, a Bachelor of Arts. Nowadays, you need an MA to do the same work. And probably in 10, 15 years time, it'll be a PhD. Right. So, the work itself hasn't changed, but the, the educational standards to, to do the work has changed. So education has been deflated. Right. So there's two ways to look at that, right? Like is, is the education actually higher or is just our, ex, our expected standard lower yes. of like a high school graduation is, is relatively low, right? Like they're just yeah. passing everybody. <laughs> you know, we talk about this bell curve principle where, hey man, like if you're in this mid-range, you're going to do really, really well. Uh, because you know, even if you maybe otherwise would have had a 50 or a barely passing grade, now you're in the middle of the pack. So you're going to yes, get a yes, passing yes. grade. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Problem. Totally. Big problem. Amazing stuff. And it's funny how we can use, you know, the most um, instinctive thing that we do, you know, the most reflexive thing that we do as this gateway into improving the way we think, improving the way we perform. Yeah, nobody talks about that. It's funny. I'll tell you a quick story. I have, you know, on average per week, I have between 10 and 20 people that asked me to do one-on-one -on -one coaching. And my first response is, you know, unfortunately I'm full right now, but um, I'm willing to give you my first, first month of coaching for free. Well, here's what it is. I need you to walk every day for 30 days, uh, every day for 30 days. And I need you to breathe every day for 10, minimum 10 minutes, ideally, 10, ideally 20. 
And mm-hmm. if you can do that, come back to me in 30 days and we'll talk about doing the coaching. And how many sure. people do you think make it through that? Because they think I'm just pushing them off. But that's yeah, the yeah. truth. Because like yeah. if, you, if you can't learn to control your autonomic nervous system and do these really natural and instinctive reflexive things, you're not going to yeah. be able to do what I ask you to do at the deeper level and you're not going to benefit yeah. from it. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it's really interesting. Yeah, it's great. So I'm extremely excited to have you back on um, and obviously dive into the course that you're going to be offering here at the MI40 gym in Tampa. Um, but just like continue yeah. along with this conversation, if it's okay with you, we'll just keep going down this path of, you know, talking. Yeah. Well, I'm very interested in talking about the, the bear receptors and the bolt score. We talked about it a little bit last time, but to be honest, last time we spoke, my, my level of understanding of it was relatively low. It's expanded a little bit now. Um, and, and, and to be honest, I was kind of where everyone else is the last time we spoke as far as just being newly introduced to this. I didn't really, really understand the implications of what the bolt score was and how to improve it. Could you give us a little definition behind that? Sure. Um, when we're looking at the bolt score, the bolt score is simply, it's a, it's a measurement of the length of time after an exhalation until you feel the first definite desire to breathe. Correct. So you have normal breathing beforehand because if you change your breathing before measuring it, it's going to alter the bolt score. Right. So basically it's a normal breath in through your nose and normal breath out. You pinch your nose, you hold your nose and you're timing it in seconds until you feel the first involuntary movement of the breathing muscles. Now you may feel it in the throat or you may feel it from the diaphragm, or you just may feel the first stress to breathe. But the breath at the end should be fairly normal. So the bolt score, because it's not influenced by willpower determination, it doesn't have a training effect. So if you keep on measuring the bolt score, it's not going to increase it. So the bolt score then, the feedback it's giving you is, it's giving you the chemo sensitivity of your body to the accumulation of the gas CO2. Yeah. So it doesn't tell you the, the amount or the pressure of carbon dioxide in the blood but it tells you how quickly is your body reacting to the accumulation of carbon dioxide. So, yeah, go ahead. And then the chemosensitivity of carbon dioxide, if you have a strong chemosensitivity, it means that you're very sensitive to the buildup of CO2. So if you do physical exercise, your cells are generating much more CO2. And if you're very sensitive to the buildup of CO2, it means that your breathing is going to be heavy. And uh, I don't know if I can share a screen. Yeah, I'll just pull up a paper then and I can send it on to you then by trim back because this Perfect. is where it's kind of tying in then with, with uh, chemosensitivity and the baroreceptors. So I've just opened it up. Just bear with me one second there. Um, so this paper should have come up on your screen, Ben. Yep. Breath-holding so, test and evolution or evaluation of peripheral chemoreflex sensitivity to healthy subjects. So this is a, it's a 2016 paper, but you know they're looking at here that researchers have tied in a relationship then between your chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide and the functioning of the, of the baroreceptors. And this one here goes, and of course, when I go start looking for it, I'm not going to find it. So oh yeah, even this sentence here, which I'm highlighting, the sensitivity of the arterial baroreflex is inversely proportional to the sensitivity of the peripheral chemoreflex. Now, your baroreflex or the baroreceptors, if they're functioning really well, it's a very good sign of normal autonomic functioning. And in systems disturbed by stress, there's often poor functioning of the baroreceptors. And basically, the baroreceptors and their pressure receptors inside and the major blood vessels, the aorta and the, the carotid arteries, and they're monitoring um, blood pressure. And if blood pressure increases, the baroreceptors will send a message to the brain 
And the brain in turn will send an immediate message to open up blood vessels to lower blood pressure. And of course, heart rate comes down as well. And conversely, if the blood pressure drops, the bioreceptors in the blood vessels sense this. They send an immediate message to the brain and then the brain sends a message to cause vasoconstriction so that blood pressure normalizes. So if you have poor functioning, if you have got a low Bolt score, it tends to show that you've got poor functioning of the bioreceptors. So by, you, by measuring your Bolt score, we should see a correlation between Bolt score and autonomic nervous functioning. And this is opening up a whole new field um, because we would never have, I didn't realize there was such a connection between the chemo reflex and the functioning of the bioreceptors. And this then ties in with heart rate variability and respiratory sinus arrhythmia. Like we don't have to research ourselves on slow breathing, but the amount of research now on slow breathing is incredible. One cardiologist from Italy, his name is Luciano Bernardi, and he has 500 papers on, on PubMed, 500 peer-reviewed papers showing the relationship between slow breathing and different states of health. Wow. So you said something there that I'd like to pull out a little bit. You said that it's not something that we could train. So is it predominantly genetic? Oh, yes. Like I, I think it should be something that by paying attention to slow breathing, we can obviously improve yes, yeah, yeah, our totally, yeah. CO2. Yeah. What I meant there was by if you keep on measuring your both score, it's not going to influence the both score. Got but it. if you change your breathing patterns. Now, traditionally, it was taught that the only way to reduce your chemosensitivity was severe physical training that you really had to push the body because carbon dioxide in the blood, it tends to stay fairly normal, you know, in around 40 millimeter of mercury pressure. And even if you do physical exercise, even though you're producing a lot more of the gas, your ventilation improves, increases proportionately. So the amount in the blood then will stay the same. So it was taught that the only way to push these boundaries to reduce the chemosensitivity um, would be to do severe physical training. But we know that slow breathing does it um, reduced breathing does it, breath holding does it. And slow breathing to a cadence of six breaths per minute is the optimal number of breaths to stimulate the bioreceptors and to reduce the chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide. Yeah, I had another guest on uh, very recently. He's a good friend of mine, Dr. Michael Hamilton, speaking about how the current resident respiration rate is between 17 and 19 breaths per minute on average per, yes. per people. Whereas in 1920, she said it was between five and seven breaths which is where yes. we're supposed to be, right? And how does that happen, right? Like how do we take yeah. in a hundred years, take this species that have evolved for millions of years and just destroy yes. it, ultimately destroy yeah. our, our yeah. nervous system, almost destroying our brains in yes. less than a hundred years. And the frightening thing is this is accepted as normal. And I've even seen the changes in 20 years. You know, when I was first looking at this, I started this 20 years ago and we would see 12 to 14 breaths as normal. But now I'm seeing, um, I would agree with Dr. Hamilton, we're seeing 16 breaths as normal, 17 breaths as normal, but we're also seeing that there's a change in blood gases. Um, if you had less than 37 millimeter of mercury pressure of CO2 20 years ago, it was deemed as hypocapnic. In other words, you have too low a CO2, mm -hmm. but that's now dropped to 35. Now, two millimeter drop of CO2 is fairly significant because the body is very sensitive <clears throat> to the accumulation of carbon dioxide. So where are these norms coming from? You know, is it just that somebody is sampling a specific target of the population and getting, you know, what seems to be the norm in that population, but that's not a normal population because, you know, they're, they're exposed maybe to a lot of stresses, a lot of factors of modern living, and um, this has influenced the readings. Well, I don't think my demographic is after normal. I think we're after optimal and, and um, you know, 37 yes. millimeters of mercury is, is, I think, low, right? So yes. how, do, how do we... 
one, how do we measure? And two, how do we begin to influence in a positive way? You know, you mentioned exercise, deep breathing, breath holds. Uh, I'd like yes. to getting into this, this conversation around like, what does the practice actually look like? Um, but yeah. what is an optimal level? Is it 40? I know you mentioned the number 40 in there, or is, can we push it higher than that? I've heard Dr. Yeah. Hamilton mention up to 43 being like yes. high-end performance. Yes. Um, so it ranges from, say, 37 to 44, 43 millimeter of mercury pressure. It's when it goes above 45, it's deemed hypercapnic. That the is that a bad thing? It's, it's probably, you only tend to see it in somebody say, it depends. During breath holding, we increased it to 55 millimeter of mercury pressure. We may increase it even more. Um, but if you have an individual who's constantly hypercapnic, it could suggest that their breathing is too reduced or the gas exchange is, is too low. So say somebody with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, the, the oxygen isn't able to get from the alveoli, from the small air sacs in the lungs to the blood. But conversely, the carbon dioxide is not able to get from the blood back into the small air sacs to be exhaled. So we do need that optimum because if you think of the, the functions of carbon dioxide in the human body, and many people will say, well, breathe in oxygen and get rid of as much carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is toxic. It's a waste gas. It's responsible for climate change. You know, it's not good in your buildings. Right. And yet people don't realize that the release of oxygen from the red blood cells is influenced by carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is the primary regulator of blood pH. You know, normal blood pH is 7.365. If we go too alkaline to 7.8, cells die. And if we go too acidic to 7.8, cells die. Um, carbon dioxide is a vasodilator or vasoconstrictor. In other words, your blood vessels, your blood circulation is influenced by the level of carbon dioxide. And also, um, you know, it's, it's the, as I said, like the primary regulator of blood pH. And people are talking about acid diet and alkaline diet, but really it's through the breath that we excrete 10,000 milliequivalents of acid per day. And the secondary backup is the kidney. And the kidneys dump 100 milliequivalents of acid per day. So I, I think carbon dioxide, for some reason, just got bad press. And there's an idea out there that's used as gas, but we're really, you know, so dependent on it. You know, our blood circulation, our body pH, and delivery of oxygen to the tissue is dependent on this gas. So, you know, just to to the ear, thirty seven to forty three or forty four sounds like a really small range. But I'm guessing yes. if that's the entire population range, that's probably a pretty drastic swing. So when you talk about this uh, drop to thirty five, that's you know effectively twenty five percent. That's a big yes. big difference, right? Yeah, but it's a big difference in terms of the body sensitivity to the gas CO two. For example, if I had somebody really just slow down their breathing, and as you slow down your breathing, carbon dioxide is going to accumulate in the blood because it's not leaving the lungs so readily. So basically it's our breathing which determines the CO2 in the blood. If we breathe hard, we get rid of a lot of carbon dioxide from the lungs and this in turn then will reduce it in the blood. And conversely, if we slow down our breathing, we accumulate CO2 in the lungs and this in turn will accumulate CO2 in the blood. But the body is very sensitive to a buildup of CO2. A two to five millimeter increase of CO2 will double ventilation. So you, it's a lot easier to get rid of carbon dioxide than it is to accumulate it. If I ask somebody to hyperventilate for 30 seconds, they can half the amount of CO2 in their blood by, yeah, by half, from 40 millimeter of mercury down to 20. And every one millimeter drop of CO2 reduces blood flow to the brain by 2%. So that was published by a researcher, McGarry, and probably back in the 1980s, but we see it quoted since. So if you think of 30 seconds of hard breathing, can reduce blood flow to the brain by 
So people then, you know, how many people believe that it's good to be really breathing hard? They're hard breathing, they're getting rid of CO2, and then they're feeling the symptoms of lightheadedness and dizziness. Now, they may think that they're super oxygenated, but it's conversely, it's blood vessel constriction that's causing so that. that. That brings up a really interesting topic that's very hot right now is Wim Hof, right? So everybody's yes. doing this Wim Hof breathing to try to elicit these state changes. Yes. Uh, they're trying to hyperventilate to elicit state changes and prevention, yeah. what, prospectively what they're, what they're suggesting is uh, autonomic control in some way. And I honestly haven't yes. studied with Wim, so I don't want to say that I know yes. about it at all, but I'm sure this is an area of expertise for you. So I'd love to hear about your thoughts behind this hyperventilation uh, yeah. practice. Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting practice. I think short term, it would be fine once people realize that this is not the way to breathe all the time. Um, you know, as I said, cells die when your pH increases to 7.8. Well, in Cox's paper from doing the Wim Hof technique and doing hyperventilation, pH increased to 7.75. So it's really going into severe respiratory alkalosis. I, it's, it's quite, you know, it's quite in a, a severe um, adaptation, or it's, it's quite a severe stressor to the body. And what that's doing is antagonizing the immune system, which it seems to show that the immune system then is functioning better. Now, the question to ask is, it would be great to isolate what's exactly working with the Wim Hof technique. Clearly, something is working in it. It would also be great to ask the question, to what extreme do we need to go to get the body to stress? Yeah, so we do right? Yeah. Like we do breath tolling, we drop the blood oxygen saturation down to the mid-80s. That's severe hypoxia. We also have hypercapnia. So from our approach, we do hypoxic, hypercapnic training, and it's intermittent. So you've got periods of low blood oxygen saturation, high carbon dioxide, and then you've got periods of normal breathing. Whereas the Wim Hof technique is hypoxic, hypocapnic. So there's some similarities and there's some differences to it. Um, <clears throat> you know, I think it's really good in some ways. It's put breathing on the map, sure. um, the hyperventilation aspect of it. And also it's, it's asked a question, what can we do to the autonomic nervous system? Because traditionally it was thought we couldn't really influence it all that much. And medications, you know, if you've seen the medications for rheumatoid arthritis, for some of these serious autoimmune conditions, these medications are designed to specifically antagonize the immune system. They're very expensive. They've got serious side effects. Now, could you do it um, by using something like the Wim Hof method? by using something like the Oxygen Advantage. And none of this information is new. The Oxygen Advantage information is new. All of this information has been around for maybe two to two and a half thousand years. But now we're starting to realize that there's a little bit of science and background to it. And the right. same with the Wim Hof technique. And I think it's tremendous because it's giving people, you know, the tools that they can hold on to for the rest of their life. And we're literally in a comfort zone now, Ben. You know, you think of our ancestors, we would have been, I'm living out here in the west of Ireland, we would have been hard physical labor. The land is terrible. So we've We're been the weakest species of humans ever, <laughs> by far. I, I think, and, you I, know, I would agree because we haven't been exposed to the stressors that our ancestors have. And the human being is, has adopted as a result of the stressors. The very fact that we're here is, tes is testimony to the fact that we've been able to evolve um, and cope with whatever life was throwing at us. But nowadays, we, we don't have these stressors. So here's where cold showers come in. This is where cold water immersion comes in. This is where strong breath holding comes in. And the other thing that I would say is that I think it's very important to change functional breathing. There's two aspects to breathing. One is your everyday breathing patterns. Like when I have an athlete coming into me or an individual coming in off the street, I want to see 
what is their functional breathing? What is their everyday breathing like? So I want to address that. And I also want to give them then the second pillar, which is strong breath holds to force their body to make adaptations. Incredible. Have you looked at, um, I'm sure there's research, maybe there's not, on the duration necessary to elicit this immune uh, adaptation from uh, hyperoxygenation, like uh, hyper, um, you know, fast breathing? Yes. The, is it the breath holding that's causing the, the antagonist? See, this is where we haven't isolated it. Now, for 15, 16 years, I've seen individuals prone to chest infections, different complaints, we had chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, type 1 diabetes, and we've seen changes, but we didn't know what the changes were. I think it's a combination of number one is the stimulation of the baroreceptors, influencing, you know, through slow breathing. Now, the breath holding probably is the biggest stressor there because with the Wim Hof technique, we know the information that it was activation of the sympathetic response because there was a relationship between the, the production of adrenaline, noradrenaline, and the, the body's ability to withstand um, endotoxins that were injected into the individuals. In other words, the immune system response seems to be as a result of activation of the sympathetic response. Right. Breath holding will do that. Now, probably fast breathing. Fast breathing is going to do it. Not probably, it will definitely do it. Um, but isolating what's happening there is the difficult thing. But nobody's talked about like duration. So is it, is it you know, three breaths? Is it a minute of breaths? Is it 30 seconds? Has anybody kind of compared the... Again, I, you know, it's, it's, I haven't got that information. I haven't come across it. There might be studies out there on it. Um, and what I'd be looking at is, to what degree do you need to lower blood oxygen saturation to get that effect? You know, is it the strong breath holes that's doing it? Or is it the hyperventilation that's doing it? Have you ever looked at um, any benefit to, you see a lot of people doing, you know, uh, 100% oxygen chambers, or there's now this yes. new mechanism called the LIVO2, which is again, as you said, taking you through, you know, high amounts of super oxygen saturation, and then periods yes. of, of oxygen um, depletion. Have you looked at yes. any stuff like that as far as actually seeing a benefit to one, first and foremost, breathing 100% oxygen, because I know a lot of people are doing that. Yeah, well, breathing 100% oxygen, you have to be careful with oxygen too, because if the concentration is too high, it can lead to toxicity. And toxicity could be very damaging for the lungs, could be very damaging for the individual. Now, hyperventilation wouldn't do that, or at least it shouldn't do it. Um, when we're looking at blood oxygen saturation, we were bearing in mind that oxygen is carried in the blood two ways. 98% of it is carried by hemoglobin molecules, which are protein um, that's found inside in the red blood cell. And then 2% is carried dissolved directly in the plasma. When you hyperventilate, you don't increase the saturation of hemoglobin with oxygen. So in other words, the vast majority of oxygen is carried by hemoglobin, and that will stay fairly stable, even if you hyperventilate or not. The hyperventilation, or if you were taking increased oxygen, will increase the amount of oxygen dissolved in the plasma. But the hyperventilation then is causing a left shift of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. So the hemoglobin that's holding on to oxygen is going to hold on to it more readily. So it, this is the real question. During hyper, I'll just look at hyperventilation first. During hyperventilation, does it increase or decrease the amount of oxygen delivered to the cells? On one hand, the bond between the affinity between hemoglobin and oxygen is strengthened, right. so less oxygen is getting delivered. Blood vessels are constricting, so less oxygen is getting delivered. And on the other hand, the amount of oxygen that's dissolved in the plasma has increased, which is going to increase the fusion from the blood to the cells. But bearing in mind only 2% is dissolved in the blood. So it's a difficult question. The higher oxygen concentrations. Um, 
really, we're probably aimed at the same thing here. We want to get more oxygen delivery to the cells. Right. And how can we do it? Can you, you know, one, a physiological tried and tested method that we all have with us that we can carry around with us 24 hours a day, slow down your breathing, increase CO2 in the blood or do some strong breath holding. That will cause a right shift of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve and the affinity of hemoglobin for oxygen reduces and hemoglobin will release oxygen to the cells. So slow breathing and strong breath holding will release and increase oxygen delivery to the cells. And if you do, you know, um, baric chambers and it's increasing the, the amount of oxygen dissolved in the plasma through the fusion, you would also expect oxygen delivery to increase to the cells there. Um, yeah, so, so I think it's, it's, we're along similar lines, you know, and I haven't looked at the hyperbaric chambers enough to, to give a, a definitive answer. But, you know, I would say that given that people are finding benefits from it, there seems to be, you know, a good, a good foundation of papers on it and to show that, that they're beneficial. Where I'm really looking to elicit an understanding here, Patrick, is, is this acute um, adaptation that we can elicit around a workout. So I'm, yes. I'm coming into a workout and I'm trying to improve performance or I'm trying to ultimately elicit some type of, of super yes. physiological oxygenation or, or super physiological performance in some way. I want to yeah. look, that's why I keep asking the time question. I'm like, well, how much, how long is the minimum amount of time that I need to do some breath hold or, or some... Yeah. Um, yes, you know, slowed breathing to actually elicit and increase oxygenation in my tissue. Yeah. Okay. Well, in terms of a stressor, five strong breath holds separated by two minutes between each breath hold. And uh, okay. do three, three, three sets. Yep. And each set is separated by 10 minutes. So it's five strong breath holds and three sets with each set separated by 10 minutes. That is equivalent to spending six hours at an altitude of 1,780 meters. And in terms of erythropoietin, it increases EPO by 24%. Now, the goal there is to drop your blood oxygen saturation from normal, which is 95 to 99%, down to about 85%, which is very much achievable. So here's 30, not even quite, but, you know, just with, with, the, with the rest in between. And I don't even think you need 10 minutes rest. Like we're doing breath holding all the time. We're doing it now with repeated sprintability with different athletes, et cetera. Um, we, we leave a small rest, two or three minutes rest there. And here's a small amount of time to get very good adaptations. To give you an, another example, if you do one strong breath hold, it will cause the spleen to contract. And your spleen is your blood bank, your left-hand side of your diaphragm just underneath it. It contains very richly dense populated blood cells. The hematocrit is 80%. And typically in a female, hematocrit. And hematocrit is the fraction of your entire blood that carries oxygen. So typically in a female, if you were to look at the fraction of their entire blood that's carrying oxygen, bearing in mind the plasma, the white cells, the red cells, uh, their hematocrit is about 36 to 44%. And if a male is about 40 to 50%, but the hematocrit in the spleen is 80%. So it's very good quality blood. So when you do one breath hold for about 30 seconds, your spleen will already start releasing red blood cells into circulation. And if you do five strong breath holds, it peaks after about two hours and then it goes back to normal. Um, no, sorry. With the five strong breath holds, the effect lasts for 60 minutes. So the splenic contraction, it takes 60 minutes before the spleen reabsorbs that additional blood, the blood that's released back into circulation. So you think of an athlete. You know, most events are going to take place within 60 minutes. Right. I would have an athlete doing five strong breath holds before the event 
to increase their oxygen carrying capacity. Now, straight after doing the five strong breath tools, I'd have them take five or six big breaths to offload acidity. So it's not going to increase their ventilation. Faster, slow. Faster, Faster. just just to to get rid of CO2. And, you know, that would be a stressor. Now, if you're practicing strong breath tooling, you're really disturbing the blood acid base balance. And we, we do the exhale hold technique and that's purposely designed. Like if you breathe in and hold your breath, it's a lot more difficult to drop your blood oxygen saturation because you've got lungs full of air and that oxygen is continuously diffusing into the blood. Like the reason that we can drop the blood oxygen saturation is because we stop breathing on an exhalation and your cells continue to extract oxygen, but you're not replenishing it through the breath. And this is what's dropping then the blood oxygen saturation. As a result, then the hydrogen ion that's coming from the muscle doesn't get oxidized because there's insufficient oxygen. So the hydrogen ion then is associating with pyruvic acid. It forms lactic acid. And this in turn then associates into lactate and hydrogen ion. So we're deliberately increasing the hydrogen ion in the blood. And also, you know, it'll be in the muscle compartment as well that we're increasing because there's going to be such an acidity in, inside in the blood that it's going to slow down the release of acid coming from the muscle into the blood. So we would say that, yes, we're increasing the acidity in, in the, inside in the muscle as well. Now, at the same time, carbon dioxide increases, and that too dissociates the hydrogen ion and bicarbonate. So you've got a hydrogen ion effect from the hypoxic response and also a hydrogen ion from the hypercapnic response, the increased CO2. So this is disturbing the blood acid base balance to force the body to make adaptations. And the adaptations there will be increased buffering capacity, probably inside in the muscle compartment. And inside in the muscle, you know, if you're increasing the buffering capacity of proteins and phosphates, um, you know, it, what it does then, it delays lactic acid and fatigue. So breath holding is a very simple thing because the thing I like about it is that you can bring it into a, in a training very, very easy. You know, I can understand athletes don't want to, you know, they don't want me coming in interfering with their training regime. But what I'd say to them, listen, you're doing a 10, 15 minute warm up. Number one is do it with your mouth closed, breathe through your nose and breathe slow and deeply. And that's what we need to have a chat, a chat about as well. Yep. So, and then in between that, do five strong breath holds throughout the warm up. So you're getting those adaptations just in your warm up. And then at the end, after you've cooled down, you could do the same again. So it, you know, you're not into all you're doing is making sl- slight tweaks to existing training to get the adaptations. So you brought something up that was actually going to be my next question is you're talking about it's breathing and you listed, uh, alluded to the fact that it's all going to be nasal breathing. Um, talk to me about that. Cause, and then this, this idea of, of deep nasal breathing during the practice, during the event, during the warm up. Uh, that's something yeah. that I've become a massive advocate of, and I've noticed a massive difference in my perceived effort. So I could do things now that I used to perceive as extremely difficult uh, in even though I would, I would gauge my overall uh, fitness much lower than it is than now than it was then. So I was much stronger, I was much bigger. Uh, things I, you know, strength uh, feats that I used to be able to do now are easy. I don't breathe, I don't even sweat um, just because I'm learning to control my breath. So I'm seeing this massive increase in performance by doing nothing other than improving my ability to, to hold breath and control deep extended breaths when I'm exercising. Yeah. It's two things probably happening. One is you've got improved respiratory muscle strength from breathing through the nose. If you do physical exercise with your mouth closed, you're adding an extra load onto the diaphragm muscle. It's helping to strengthen it. And if a stronger muscle is less likely to tire. 50% of athletes experience diaphragmatic fatigue. 
And if the diaphragm gets tired, blood is stolen from the legs to feed the diaphragm. Mm. So if you see an athlete and they're in a race or they're in some sort of physical exercise, and the next thing their legs are going jelly, you have to ask is what's causing this fatigue? Is it diaphragmatic fatigue? Now, the amount of people, athletes, et cetera, that do have breathing pattern disorders. And when we're looking at this, we're simply looking at mouth breathing, fast breathing, upper chest breathing. I'll use Conor McGregor as one. And um, because he's probably an athlete that a lot of people can, you know, they can identify with. Look at his breathing during press conferences. His breathing is upper chest and his breathing is fast. There's no natural pauses between breaths. Now, if I looked at somebody breathing like that, the one thing that I'll predict is number one is they've got a low bolt score. And number two is they're going to gas out too soon during competition. And that's what's happening. And, you know, you can have athletes with all of the best team of support around them, but people aren't looking at their breathing. So in terms of the lungs itself, when you switched from mouth to nasal breathing, because if I was to put into Google, what's the best way to breathe during a run? Everybody would say, well, breathe through your mouth because you can't get enough air through your nose. Right. Now we have to ask is what's more efficient? The human lungs, the vast majority of blood in the lungs is in the lower lobes of the lungs. So if we're breathing through the mouth, mouth is activating the upper chest. So mouth breathing is fast and shallow. We're taking the, the air into the upper lobes but the blood concentration is actually in the lower lobes. So this is called, you know, what we want is we want the ratio of air meeting blood almost one. Now, when you breathe through your nose, you carry the air deeper into the lungs. And also when you breathe through your nose, you pick up nitric oxide. And nitric oxide redistributes the blood from the lower lobes to the upper lobes. So there's a more efficient gas exchange taking place. And that increases oxygen uptake in the blood by 10%. Now that would be the amount of PO2 which is the concentration of your entire oxygen. Um, so it would indicate the blood that's in the plasma. Or sorry, the oxygen in the plasma. Now, secondly, every breath that we take, say, through the mouth or through the nose, not all of this air will actually reach the small air sacs. 150 milliliters of this air will remain, say, part of it in the nasal cavity, um, in the throat, in the trachea, in the bronchi, in the bronchioles. So every breath that we take, if a breath, if one breath is 500 milliliters, only 350 milliliters of that breath will actually reach the small air sacs where gas exchange can take place. So if we're breathing fast through the mouth, you can imagine an individual who's breathing, say, we would just say, we'll say 10 breaths just for easiness sake in terms of maths. I'd say that the individual was breathing, yeah, 20 breaths through the, through the mouth. At each breath is a half liter, which is giving us 10 liters. And if we subtract then dead space, we're talking about 20 breaths by 350, which gives seven liters. So 20 breaths coming in through the mouth of that, that's giving us 10 liters. And of that seven liters is actually reaching the small air sacs. Now, if I switch that to nasal breathing and nasal breathing is going to impose a resistance to slow down the breath. So we'll say through the nose, we're breathing 10 breaths, slow, deep breaths. The size of each breath is bigger. The volume is the same as 10 liters. 10 liters come in through the nose, but there's less space, less air loss to dead space. So of that, eight and a half liters actually reaches the small air sacs. So nasal breathing is efficient by about 15%. Just by, if you were to take in the same volume, mouth versus nose, the efficiency of nasal breathing is 15% higher. How do we deal with somebody who's got like 
physiological adaptations to their mouth and teeth where they just walk around all the time with their mouth open. Is, is it necessary to go as far as mouth taping? Cause it, so like exercise oftentimes requires full conscious attention. So I need to be paying yes. attention to what I'm doing. And yeah. I, if I'm thinking about my breath, I can't necessarily think about, or at least keep my mouth closed. I can't necessarily think about the event I'm trying to partake in. Yeah. During the, during the event itself, I wouldn't be concerned about their event. I'd be concerned about their breathing up to the event. How are they doing during training and trying to get their mouth closed down and not even to have their mouth closed during 100% of the training because mouth, because say for instance, Caucasians have narrow nostrils. Um, somebody like me, I've got poor symmetry of the nostrils of a deviated septum. And if any of your athletes are after getting a knock or a punch or anything, mm-hmm. their, their nose is off. So they may have a compromised airway. So it may be necessary for them to, to wear nasal dilators. And a nasal dilator is just based on the cotton maneuver. You just put one finger here, one finger here, just prize your nostrils, and you can feel that airflow is freer. But that would be one aspect that I would do. But the second aspect is to increase both score. And both score is increased by your everyday breathing. How are you breathing during sleep? Is your mouth open or closed? And for that, we would absolutely recommend breathing through the nose during sleep. And taping of the mouth is, you know, probably the easiest way to ensure that you're breathing through the nose. Now, awareness of this is really changing, Ben. I'm here in Ireland, so but I know you've got a program in the States called Shark Tank. And uh, there was a company who presents in Shark Tank just about two weeks ago or so called Somnifix. Yeah. And the investor, Mark Cuban, he invested, I think, $500,000 oh, wow. for, for a 20% stake in the company. Wow. And when I was reading through the research, not the research, but the comments, one of the comments was he says, because he sees the application of this in sports. Now, this is pretty amazing because we've been advocating nasal or mouth taping for 20 years now. Really? Telling everybody about it, putting it into the box. And we were seeing benefits in terms of deeper sleep, improved sleep, waking up more alert, less stress in the body, focus, all of that comes with it. And also, as you said, like if you do have an athlete, but say poor craniofacial development, if you have your mouth closed at night, it's a lot easier then to be keeping your mouth closed during the day. And it's not only having the mouth closed, but also tongue resting in the roof of the mouth. Tongue resting in the roof of the mouth is very important for stability. Um, it, it's, it's incredible like how all of this is interlinked. If you're breathing through your nose, you can have your tongue resting in the roof of the mouth. And if you're breathing through your nose, you're, you're using your diaphragm. And your diaphragm muscle, the, the benefits of that is not just the muscle to help, you know, bring oxygen into the body, but also for core strength and for stabilization of the spine, for motor control, for movement. And if your movement is good, then you're, you're less likely to be injured. You know, it's, it's, I think just the benefits of this are, you know, it's, it's for, for a simple application. Absolutely incredible. And so I think I'll ask you this last time, but I want to, I want to get your opinion on it again. Um, the idea of, of some kids out there have already as young as like four and five are already starting yes. to mouth breathe, particularly yes. when they sleep. Um, is that something that's a reasonable application for a parent to like, I think it makes a lot of sense. Cause I mean, the last thing you want is to develop a non-physiological breathing pattern yes. as a child. Is that something yes. you do with your family? Yes. With my own daughter, I ensured that absolutely she was breathing through her nose. I didn't want her to be developing the same issues I had for 20 years. I'd go to high school. Um, I had very poor concentration. And I had very poor concentration because my sleep was continuously disrupted. Mm-hmm. I was a kid growing up with asthma. And if you have asthma in the lungs, you'll tend to have inflammation of the nose. And if your nose is stuffy, you tend to breathe through your mouth. And if your nose is stuffy and you're breathing through your mouth, your sleep is affected. And if your sleep is affected, 
um, your concentration and academics are affected. And this is really scary because there's been really good studies. Karen Bonnock has done studies in the States and different studies showing that ADD and um, behavioral issues with kids, concentration, all adversely affected by mouth breathing. But yet none of this stuff has got down to the general population. Afterwards, I'll send you an article that was published. Um, I think it was published in a journal called Current Trends in Autolaryngology in ENT. And it gives you st the statistics of the learning disabilities that children are experiencing as a result of poor sleep. And the article goes on to say that children, doctors generally don't realize that ADD and ADHD, you know, and the link with nasal obstruction, they don't get that. You know, they're giving maybe medications for ADD and ADHD. But what's causing the root of this? The problem is poor sleep. The children are sleeping and their sleep is so disrupted that there's so much adrenaline going through their system all night long. And when they wake up, they're in this adre adrenaline fueled, And that's why they're being hyperactive. And I'm not going to say that, yes, this is the cure and cause or anything 100%. But I'm saying that there is a significant link there and we should be looking at it. For parents, the biggest thing that we did in terms of, you, there's a very simple exercise to decongest the nose. You know, once the child doesn't have hypertension, pulmonary hypertension, which is pretty rare anyway, but for a child that has a stuffy nose or an adult who has a stuffy nose, if the adult isn't pregnant or if they don't have cardiovascular issues, breathe in through the nose, breathe out through the nose, pinch the nose and have them walk around holding their breath. Pinch just as if they're nostrils. underwater. Yeah, pinch both nostrils so that you stop breathing. Mm -hmm. And then walk while you hold your breath and keep walking until you feel, say, a medium air hunger, medium strong air hunger, and then let go and breathe in through your nose and then kind of calm down your breathing. Wait a minute and do it again and do it five or six times. And if you have inflammation of your nose, your nose will open up. So without antihistamines, without nasal steroids. So this would be an exercise that we teach the kids all the time. I have them run, you know, because you can imagine teaching young children breathing exercise. But they don't want to be, they want to be moving. They don't want to be sitting still. I'm not going to have them meditate. I'm going to have them running, jumping. Um, we have them sprinting with the breath holding, doing whatever we can do that, that they'll do it. And we improve the respiratory muscle strength. We help to restore nasal breathing. One of the aspects with nasal breathing is when the children are distracted during the day <clears throat> is for them to wear paper tape across the lips. So say, for instance, you have a child and the child may be doing some homework or the child is, if they're playing Lego or whatever they're doing, have them wear the paper tape when they're distracted because we want to train the brain that the nose is for breathing and not the mouth. Now, we also have them wear the paper tape during the day to see and determine where is the obstruction. For instance, in very young kids, it could be the back of the nose, the, the adenoids are enlarged. I don't have my model of my nose to hand here and I can show you. Um, or one second, I do. So just to show you, sorry there, I wasn't really prepared for this. That's all right. Um, so here we have an, a model of the nasal cavity. And the first thing is also, I think it's really worthwhile thinking that, look at the extent of the nasal cavity. Look, so here we have the tongue here. So oftentimes what I ask the clients coming in is, put your tongue into the roof of the mouth, and they do. And I say, draw your tongue along the roof of the mouth until you can feel the soft palate. And they feel the soft palate. And then I explain, well, the roof of your mouth is the floor of your nose. So look at the amount of space occupied by the nasal cavity. And here you have turbinates, which are spongy-like structures. So when you breathe through narrow nostrils, this speeds up the air, but then the air enters a wide chamber. 
So particulate matter that's in the air is deposited into the nasal cavity. Now, the issue with young kids is if the, this thing here at the back of the nose is called adenoids, and these, this is lymphatic tissue. If the child has enlarged adenoids, it can impede the breathing through the back of the nose. But enlarged adenoids are a problem if the airway is small. Now, you see the development of the face here. We've got a straight nose. We've got the maxilla, which is the top jaws fairly far forward. And we've got the maxilla, the lower jaw, sorry, the maxilla, the top jaws far forward. We've got the mandible, the lower jaws far forward, which has le left us with a decent enough airway. And a good airway is the size of the tongue. It's, this is, we were talking about the changes of civilization earlier on. Um, just going back to the point that I make is with, with young kids, if the parent does see their, the child with their mouth open, and, you know, once the child is, say, three, four years of age and also under supervision, wear, wear simple paper tape. And the tape that we use can be lip seal tape. So it's a little paper tape that the child wears. And it just helps to keep the leaves together. That's something it's from you, that it's for sale or? <laughs> yeah, it's, it was developed by a dentist in Colorado. His name is Dr. Frank Seaman. Okay. And uh, he, he kind of invented it for his patients. His patients were bruxing. They were grinding and grinding. Grinding during sleep is a sleep issue, but grinding during the day is an anxiety issue. And his patients were grinding and they were breaking down their teeth. So he's, he, he, he found out himself that he needs to get them breathing through the nose. And their bruxing significantly reduced, meaning that their sleep has improved. So the story behind him is he climbed a peak in the United States called Pike's Peak with his mouth taped. Yeah, wow. And it, it got into one of the local newspapers. And sometimes, you know, if somebody spots something like this, they'll send it on to me. So he came in to me and I sent him an email and we made contact then. And, you know, we've met up a few times since. So looking at it from a different perspective, he also noticed the benefits of nasal breathing. And as a result, then he came up with that tape. So I was then, you know, in terms of then, okay, I'm kind of lo after losing my train of thought, then I was talking about the children wearing the tape during the day when they were distracted in order to ensure nasal breathing. And I was going to go another, yes. Yeah. Yeah, size yeah. of the airway. The, the I was in Lithuania at the, the dental the clinic in early January. And um, these dentists, team of dentists, there's 10 dentists there. They were commissioned with a task of, during the revolution in Lithuania, a group of Lithuanian individuals were rebelling against the Russian people. And the Russian authorities found them and they hung them back in 1917 or 1918. And they threw the bodies into this grave, unmarked grave inside in the city center at the capital of Lithuania. So these dentists, these graves were only recently identified and found. And these dentists were commissioned with the task of identifying the skulls. Now, we looked at the skulls. We looked at photographs of the skulls. And the one thing that we were all commenting on was the craniofacial shape was incredible. These guys had really strong jaws and forward development of the jaws, and they had so much room for their tongue in the mouth. Now compare that, to, that's only since 1917, 1918, when these, when these individuals were, were, um, were, you know, since they passed on. Compare that to the modern, the modern face. The jaws are set back, and if the jaws are set back at all, this is what's compromised, the airway. And if the airway is compromised, sleep is compromised. So right. the entire quality of life of the individual and craniofacial development happens very early on. The first critical, the real critical growth 
period in a child is probably between two and six years of age. This is the time when parents have to keep on buying new clothes for the kids. The kids, they get clothes for the kids. A month later, they've, they've outgrown of the kids mm -hmm. while the, the face is growing at the same speed. And if the child has the mouth open during that time, that's when it can have an adverse effect. And I've heard a lot of comments around uh, what we're eating, influencing that, yes. right? If you're eating, if you're, like typically, historically, you'd be eating yes. probably a lot of meats, a lot of, a lot of chewy vegetables, not a lot of overly cooked foods. Yes. Now everything's hyper palatable. It's mush. It's very easy to consume high amounts of calories. So their jaws just aren't developed the same way. Yes. Like I, I'm very adamant that my kids are eating things that are hard for them to eat. You know, they <laughs> eat a little bit of steak. They're like, oh, it's too chewy. I'm like, good. Do it again. You know, like, yes. right? Like that's a big thing. I want strong developed yeah, jaws. No, absolutely. In terms of, it's not just about aesthetics. It's really about the functionality of the individual. Um, and it really does boil down to the airway. In the airway, we have to consider, like there's a few different things can influence it. Um, if the child has a genetic predisposition to nasal obstruction, Anything that's causing the nose to be anyway stuffy, if the child tries to breathe through the nose, if they feel they're not getting enough air, they're going to mouth-breathe. That's going to set it off. The food, as you mentioned, absolutely. Um, you know, our ancestors were, there's, there's an anthropologist and an orthodontist in the UK called Dr. John Mew and Dr. Mike Mew as well, also an orthodontist. And for 50 years, they've been advocating the necessity of chewing well for development of the jaws. Another thing that impacts development of the jaws is breastfeeding. So many people will know that breastfeeding is beneficial for, for the right nutrition, but probably less well known is that to, for the child to get the milk from the breast, they really have to develop and work the muscles of the face. So it's setting up good muscle tone and this will help them to maintain his right. breathing. So there's a few different factors just feeding into that. So one thing I want to talk about yes. is is this kind of process of what breathing should look like. So that's something that a lot of people, a lot of people talk about. Like, okay, we know we need to breathe through the nose, but most people are still going to be very shallow. Is there like a thought process you use to teach people this physiological breathing pattern or maybe a visualization you give sure. people? Like, hey, this There's is what it should look like. Usually start like off can you give so us any good the first thing that I would that? start off with is have people say, put their hand on their chest and just above their, their navel and to tune into their breathing and to tune into the breathing pattern. Yep. So the breathing pattern would be, say, the amplitude or the wave of the breath, the speed of the breath. Is there any natural pauses between breaths? And then I simply have them just gently slow down the speed of the air coming into the nose and have a very, very relaxed and slow, gentle breath out. So the ratio of the breath in to the breath out should be about 1 to 1.5. Slow down the breathing so that your air, the amount of air that you're taking into your body is less now than it was before you started. This generates a feeling of air hunger. And air hunger simply tells you that carbon dioxide is accumulated in the blood because the primary stimulus to breathe is carbon dioxide. So I want people to gently slow down their breath, soften the breath, not by freezing their body, not by tensing up the body, just by gently concentrating on their breathing to create air hunger and to see then the physiological responses from it. Number one, People tend to have increased watery saliva in the mouth as a result of slowing down their breath. Number two, they tend to be warmer. Number three, they tend to be a little bit drowsy. So here's activation of the parasympathetic response, the body's relaxation response. Number four, in terms of meditation, it can be difficult for people to focus their attention on their breathing because their mind can be agitated. So what we're doing is focusing on the breath with the deliberate intent of air hunger. 
and the air hunger is telling us that carbon dioxide is increasing, which in turn is increasing blood flow to the brain. So in terms of a calming effect on the mind, it's, it's much, much more of an, ad, an advantage. So, you know, in, another aspect of it is that, sorry there, I've got two dogs outside and now you just, somebody is after arriving, so you just have to okay. ignore it. Sorry. Um, so another aspect, another aspect of it no is, so we're doing slow, gentle, light breathing in order to reduce the body's chemosensitivity to build up of CO2. The second thing that we're doing is bringing in diaphragmatic breathing. So the breath is slow, light, and deep. I want a deep breath using the diaphragm, but I want a very slow breath. So when people then are experienced with just slowing down their breathing to have air hunger, then we change the cadence, and we change the cadence then to six breaths per minute. So we do that in practice. And the, the benefits of it is, now coming back to your question, how would you recognize somebody with good breathing? Number one, it's in and out through your nose. Number two is there's very little movement from the chest or tummy during rest. It should be always difficult to see somebody's breathing. So if they're sleeping, their breathing is light. During the day, their breathing is light. So difficult to pick up on somebody's breathing during, during rest, etc. I'm just going to close a window here. Sorry, do you mind? <laughs> no worries. we got Trevor, the audio ninja. He'll take care of it. Yeah, you can see where I'm kind of based, and I don't know if you see that, but so you see, you see the two dogs are after. Uh, oh yeah, gosh! Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm moving so it's, in. It's very good for the mind, you know. Come back from inter great spot. Come back from travel, and I come back to this little oasis. So it's so yeah. So Trevor, I'm just after giving you some work to do. <laughs> Sorry about that. Okay, so I got a little bit distracted there with the dogs. So I'm going to come back to then just to slow breathing so at least your, your viewers have something to work with. So in terms of slow breathing, then what are we really identifying? What, when I look at somebody's breathing during rest, when I look at the functionality of the breath, I'm considering a few different things. Are they breathing using the chest, upper chest, or are they breathing using their diaphragm? Are they breathing fast or are they breathing slow? I'm also looking at are they breathing through the nose or through the mouth? And I'm also looking to see is there a natural pause following exhalation? Good breathing is regular. It's effortless. It's in and out through the nose. It's driven by the diaphragm. And there's a natural pause after exhalation. And conversely, not so good breathing. Not so good breathing is going to be through the mouth. It's upper chest. It's effortful. It's irregular. Now, it's not that, you know, when we look at somebody's breathing, it's not that they're feeling that they're in a state of panic attack or anything like that, but their breathing, it still isn't right. And when researchers are looking at breathing, they're looking at three pillars. They're looking at the biochemistry of the breath, in other words, the carbon dioxide in the blood. They're also looking at the biomechanics of the breath. Is it upper chest or is it diaphragmatic? And they're also looking at the psychophysiological aspect of the breathing by using a questionnaire called an Imagen questionnaire. Now, there's no, three correlation, there's no correlation between the three. But ultimately, breath hold time and observation of the breath is a very good thing to do. If an individual has a breath hold time less than 25 seconds, it can indicate dysfunctional breathing patterns. So we need to make sure that during rest that the bowl scores at least above 25 seconds. And conversely, when you have a bowl score above 25 seconds, your breathing tends to be diaphragmatic, regular, slow, relaxed and even.
So one thing that you mentioned there was a psychophysiological effect of uh, breathing. And, and I don't think we've touched that at all, but I'd like to know if you've seen any direct correlation or any studies that, that directly correlate um, breath rate with brain function. Like obviously we, we know subjectively there's benefit, but um, you know, so Dr. Hamilton again mentioned the correlation between this lower breath uh, respiration rate and a higher amount of alpha brain waves versus a high, higher amount of breathing, higher respiration rate being associated with kind of a mm. higher electrical signature in the brain. I haven't like looked at in terms of the, any, the electrical uh, conduct. It's an area that I haven't explored. Um, in terms of the, the brain, we know there's one paper showing that cognitive function, including memory, um, is much better as a result of nasal breathing. And I can send you on that paper later on so you can have a look through it. So there seems to be a connection there. Like Great. when we're looking at, at brain, if you're looking at sleep, we have to look at sleep and the effect that that's having on cognitive functioning. And also to look at, say, the effect of sleep apnea and dementia, that there's quite a link there. So anything that we can do to improve sleep, indirectly we're going to improve cognitive functioning. And we show without, you know, without a doubt, especially with sleep, the whole environment of sleep is changing. Um, obstructive sleep apnea is where people stop breathing during their sleep due to collapse of the airways. And this can happen in four places. So one is you're going to have the soft palate at the back of the mouth, which is falling in against the throat. Number two is the throat can be falling, the tongue can be falling into the throat. Number three is the epiglottis. And number four is that the throat itself can collapse. And if you, if you stop breathing for 10 seconds or more, it's termed as one apnea. Now, the whole sleep environment has changed in the last four years with the recognition that there's now four phenotypes. And those four phenotypes are tying very much well in with breathing, that it's a unified airway. So if we breathe using our diaphragm, the upper airway dilator muscles that are in the throat, which are designed to keep the airway open during sleep, work more effectively. Conversely, when we have our mouth closed and we have our tongue resting in the roof of the mouth, the tongue is pulled out of the airway. So the tongue has got two places to be. One, it's either in the roof of the mouth or it's falling into the throat. And if the tongue is falling into the throat, sleep is adversely affected. Nitric oxide is also, it's an aircraft messenger. So when we breathe through the nose, we're picking up nitric oxide. And that's a signaling molecule to the upper airway dilator muscles. And carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide also has a role to play. So breathing now... There's a great place now for breathing re-education and functional breathing patterns for sleep because traditionally obstructive sleep apnea was seen as an anatomical issue, but now with, with the phenotypes, there's three non-anatomical issues. Um, loop gain, arousal threshold, for example. Arousal threshold is the propensity to wake from sleep. If you have somebody who's a very, very light sleeper, that actually has a worse impact on their health and mortality than somebody who's stopping breathing for even a minute or two minutes or 80 seconds or whatever. So it's, it's the depth of sleep because if you have an individual who's constantly getting woke from sleep, they have so much sleep fragmentation, they're waking up exhausted. But in a study of 5,000 individuals, it was not necessarily those with the severest of sleep apnea who, who had passed on that had the greatest risk of mortality. It was the individuals with low arousal threshold people who were light sleepers. So then when we look at sleep, we have to think of how can we improve sleep quality? Breathing in and out through the nose is absolutely one aspect there. And I know there was a researcher, he's writing a book on behalf of Penguin Books. It's due to be published next year. 
And he's looking at the relationship between breathing and longevity. And they did some research with Stanford Medical School. They had a group of individuals that blocked their noses for 10 days and forced them to mouth breathe for the 10 days. And the one thing that they noticed was that their sleep was adversely affected. Another researcher back in 1981, Olson, um, he noticed that when individuals had blocked noses, he forced again, you know, during the study, the noses were, were obstructed to force mouth breathing that sleep is adversely affected. So mouth breathing is causing lighter sleep and lighter sleep is really impacting our health. Does anybody have any intervention strategies for people who have that kind of smaller sunken back jaw There's or is it some tremendous know, just kind of like, unfortunately, dentists that's the and orthodontists in the United States. Um, one is Dr. William Hang is based in, in California and for years, what he has been doing is actually reversing this basis the changes in the mouth as a result of extraction. So if you think it's very common for, say, a 12-year-old kid, they've got overcrowding of teeth, they go to a dentist orthodontist and the orthodontist says, well, just, you know, your teeth are too big, so we have to take out two or four teeth. But if you lose teeth, as a result, then that, this causes the jaws to be too small. So we have 32 teeth in our, in our head. We need to hold on to those because it's the, the teeth that's helping to create the space for the tongue Whereas if we get teeth removed and the jaws are pulled back, now there's not enough room for the tongue in the mouth and the tongue is falling into the airway. And this increases the risk of sleep apnea. So his, his role is individuals, his patients are coming into him. He's expanding their jaws, making room for teeth and then putting in the implants. So he's reversing the work that happened in orthodontics. Um, maybe, wow. you know, when that individual was a child, Jim Bronson, there's, um, there's a huge, really big change in terms of dentistry and um, myofunctional therapy with Mark Moeller, the Academy of Orofacial Myofunctional Therapy. And Stanford Medical School, uh, Dr. Christian Giemann, who is the founding father of sleep medicine. So he's, he's written papers now on the importance of nasal breathing during sleep and wakefulness for children. So I think there's something happening. I really do. I think there's a shift in the importance of nasal breathing for, for sleep. Maybe children now, the focus is on at the moment, but it's going to apply to adults just the same. Completely. Patrick, this is amazing. And I, I want to dive into our three-day, uh, your three-day course yes. that uh, you're going to be offering around the world and here in Tampa at the MI40 gym in August. So I'm super excited to have you out. Um, tell us about what people will learn. So it's a three-day format. I know on the second day, you're going to allow yes. uh, trainers yes. to come in, people yes. who just want to come in for, or that's athletes to come in for the one day. Yes. Um, but the whole yeah. thing so is we go trainer of, like, what, I want, what I do is certified. I've been teaching healthcare professionals since 2005. And the oxygen advantage is aimed more at, say, the fitness and healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, so the individual comes, the, the instructors are attending we go through the physiology of breathing. We go through the science. We go through each exercise. We go through a script, how to teach to individuals, how to recognize breathing pattern disorders. And we go through the application then of the technique. So when we're looking at the oxygen advantage, there's two pillars to it. I want to change functional breathing patterns to improve that. How do you measure it? How do you screen it? How do you improve it? But I also want to give hypoxic, hypercapnic um, training, strong breath holds to force the body to make adaptations. So it's bringing the two together right. and it's giving, you know, coaches, instructors, yoga people, physiotherapists, um, any disciplines who are really, you know, wanting to bring breathing into their, 
their student population, client population, giving them the tools that they can teach it. So that's the three-day instructor training. And then as also we have one day for athletes. So athletes come in and we put them through the exercises and they'll know they're onto something. You know, typically 90% of the individuals come into us are male and your athlete is coming in. They're thinking, well, breathing exercise, what's it all about? And I said to my instructors, listen, if your athletes are dubious, push them through the ranks. And when those athletes start to feel, you know, the fatigue, the effort, when they start going blue, they start listening to us because they know there's something in it and they know that we're able to make adaptations to their body, which is beyond high-intensity interval training. Um, and I'm not here to knock high-intensity interval training, but I'll give you an example. Right. Repeated sprintability in rugby. In elite rugby players, in four weeks, the application of exercises, breath holding, so basically it's a normal breath in, normal breath out, pinching the nose, sprinting for 40 meters, 30-second recovery before you sprint again on a breath hold, eight repetitions, two sets a week, repeated sprintability increased by 9 to 14.9 in elite rugby players. Now, usually at this level, the margin of a difference is maybe 1% or 2%. Here was a 33% increase within four weeks. And repeated sprintability in team sports is a really good performance indicator because it tells you the individual's ability to sprint at all-out effort followed by a very brief recovery before they sprint again. And before that, they were doing nine sessions, nine repeated sprints until exhaustion. And after four weeks, it was 14.9. And with that group, high-intensity interval training was dropped. So people will often do high-intensity interval training to stimulate anaerobic glycolysis, dropping SpO2, blood oxygen saturation, maybe down to about 93%. We're lowering it down to 85%, and in some instances, 70%. And we don't want to go below 60 because there's a risk of fainting or passing out. So we don't want to push the boundaries to the extreme, but we want to provide a good, severe physical training. Patrick, I'll tell you, when I was competing, yes. I was one of the most alpha, like hardworking guys in yes. the world. And, and I, would have, yeah. I would have probably been resistant to this stuff. I'd like everybody else. Uh, but since having retired and been exposed to it, um, I don't think there's any one single thing that will impact someone's ability to perform as immediately yes. and as drastically as this will. Like that's across the board. That's, you know, performance enhancing drugs. That's nothing. There's, there's nothing that will create such an impact in your perceived effort. So your perceived effort is, is cut in half. So now that increases your ability to do work, improves your recovery, uh, Everything that I've seen has just been absolutely phenomenal with myself and with my athletes. And again, I'll admit a lot of them are still resistant to this stuff. So I just started implementing it as something that I don't yeah. even ask about yeah. anymore. I'm like, hey, yeah. go get go get on the yeah. treadmill, tape yeah. your mouth, yeah. plug in or whatever, plug your nose, depending on what we're doing, depending who it is. And uh, the results are amazing. And the physiological benefits to someone's um, body, body fat adaptation is actually improved, right? So yes. because we're getting that increased parasympathetic stimulus from the nasal breathing, uh, people's body composition improves as well. And that's something that we didn't necessarily think about or expect, but yes. we saw that because our, our society is so sympathetically dominant. We give them this parasympathetic yes. stimulus and say, hey, um, you know, you're going to calm down your breathing rate. Yes. And their body yes. composition jumps down. They're just amazed yeah. and, and yeah. surprised. There's two aspects. Um, you know, we're, right, we're making that big of a change. Of the body, but we're also deliberately activating the sympathetic response and it's those adaptations. And maybe as well with sleep, you know, right. I think sleep was really undervalued, um, but now people are starting to, to get behind it. 
and breathing and sleep go together because if you have a very disruptive right. sleep, yep. it influences hormones. <clears throat> and one hormone is called ghrelin. So if you've got an increased stimulus of ghrelin as a result of a sleep disorder breathing, it stimulates your appetite during the day. And then as a result, you eat more, you put on too much belly fat, but this impedes diaphragmatic breathing. So then the upper airway dilator muscles don't work as effectively. Then you're more prone to sleep apnea. This increases ghrelin and it's a vicious circle. Um, I, you know, I have to say when I started looking at Luciano Bernardi's yeah. papers on the benefits of slow breathing, and here's one cardiologist from Italy who has now since retired. He's got 500 papers published on PubMed. When we're looking at most of the major chronic conditions, diabetes, um, fibromyalgia, irritable bowel syndrome, asthma, COPD, chronic fatigue, poor aerobic ability, poor resilience, longevity, and all of these can be in. So, so really, you know, when it comes back down to the application of breathing across many, many more modalities, including athletic performance, um, this was an area that was, I would say, completely overlooked um, in sports performance, that you had athletes, they had psychologists, they had strength and conditioning coaches, um, you know, different disciplines, but breathing was not looked at. And we have to ultimately boil it down to this. It's breathing and the degree of breathlessness and the strength of breathing muscles and the ability of getting oxygen to the working muscles that influences and determines physical ability. And so it makes sense to, to optimize that. And really what it's about is it's about achieving efficient breathing, light breathing, so that an athlete can impart, they can achieve more with the same amount of effort. Right. Um, I think everybody wants gains. Well, speaking about that, right? The reason that is, I believe, is in, in most athletics, the strong survive, right? If you're really, really good at something and, and you can be resilient enough to, and, and adapted to the stress and you make it far, you make it yes. far. You're, you're, you're known as elite. But the way we're looking at it now, we're trying to influence all these training variables and, and really opening up the playing field to allow more people to excel. So you have these people who maybe aren't the genetically elite, aren't the genetically gifted. Yes looking at all these different facets that we can impact and actually be able to train at that high elite level or compete yes. at that high elite level. That's yes. the difference, right? That's why this stuff's never been looked at yes. because it never needed to, right? If you weren't, if you didn't know how to breathe, you didn't know how to breathe. I'm not, I don't have time for you, right? Now it's like, yes. hey, no, no, no. I can actually make you significantly better by moving all of these, checking all these boxes, moving all the needles in this little continuum, right? Yes. So that's why yes. it's so valuable to anyone out there who's looking to improve their performance, extend their life. Yes. That's yeah. the beauty of what we do now, right? It's not just yes. like, hey, only the strong survive, only the elite can flourish. It's now everyone seems like we've really uh, yeah. leveled the playing field. Yes. No, nothing more for me, unless there's anything you want to add and finish up with. I'm super pumped and we're going to promote it really aggressively to get as many people as we can, to, or at least as is necessary to that seminar and uh, really excited to have you here. So I'm truly blessed for all the work that you're doing. Um, and gosh, thank you. I mean, what else can we say other than like, thank you for committing your life to helping myself and all these other athletes improve our uh, performance. Yeah, I'm delighted to be attending Florida. I think it's it's tremendous. I don't give so many trainings in oxygen advantage in the United States. Um, my calendar is so so kind of booked up anyway. So we're having one training this year, and we're doing it in association with yourself. I think it'll be very exciting. It'll be a great sharing of information, you know, and also different disciplines coming together and just showing the application, breathing, and benefits bring. 
Awesome. I know a lot of listeners are going to be wondering if we're going to be filming this or recording it in any way, and will it be available for sale later? And I don't know the answer to that, so I thought I'd throw that at you. Yeah, like it's, I'm open to to anything, you know, because I think with technology, we should be using it to get help get the word out there. So if the training yeah. was to be ordered, like I'm open to that um, to make it available for people who aren't able to attend face to face always has advantages. You've got that interpersonal Absolutely. connection. Um, but you know, a, a good choice or a second, you know, a second way of doing it will be that. Yeah. And uh, I say the same thing about people who get to train with me in person, right? Like I can teach you a lot over the internet, but yes. if I get to actually work with you and look at what you're doing yes. and, and be able to give you that yes. one cue that could change yeah. your life forever. Yeah. So it's absolutely necessary to, to get there in person. And uh, Patrick, thank you so much for your time. Um, I'm very grateful for you being a guest on the show and I hope we can have you back again soon. Maybe when you come to town. Great. Thanks so much, man. All the best. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap boys and girls. I hope you enjoyed the muscle intelligence podcast with Patrick McKeon head over right now and leave me a review. Tell me if you like this. Tell me if you want more of this stuff on the Muscle Intelligence page as we launch muscleintelligence.com for you as the greatest resource on the internet on how to live your greatest life in a body you love. Head over to iTunes now, leave us a review. You can head over to Instagram right now and tell me how awesome you think this podcast was. Tell Patrick how awesome you think he is. If you pick up his book on Amazon called The Oxygen Advantage, and I highly recommend it. And I also highly recommend you come hang out with us at the course August 24th. 4th, 25th, 26th, I think. Um, check my Instagram, check the MI4 Gym Instagram page for details on that. Um, and as always, if you've enjoyed this episode, or if you know someone who's living a life of high stress, or someone who's having a hard time sleeping, or someone who just likes to understand optimization of human performance, send on the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. Make sure they subscribe because we have new and amazing guests coming all the time. I'm ha- I have some amazing trips planned very, very soon to go travel the world and learn from some of the greatest experts on the planet when it comes to performance optimization. And you guys are going to be the benefactors because I'm going to interview every single one and dig into their lives so we can summarize it all and figure out really, really what those key variables are, those big rocks to move the needle and optimize our body, our mind, and our performance. I'm so grateful for you. I'm so grateful for each and every one of you tuning in and always being such a great support of the Muscle Intelligence Podcast, guys. Thank you so much. And don't forget to head over to foursigmatic.com. A massive thank you to Foursigmatic for making this episode possible. Foursigmatic.com slash muscle. Use the code muscle to get 15% off. Do it and let's all live our greatest life. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. If you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.